Once again, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Romans chapter 7 is a really challenging and complicated chapter in the Bible. Uh, I mean, it is. It's hard to teach. It's challenging to teach. It's challenging to listen and to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. But I think it is. It's very, very important for us to understand this as we move through this, this series that we're in, Life in the Spirit. You know, because one of the, uh, the verses I've quoted to you over and over again um, during this series in Romans has been the end of Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that we too may walk in newness of life. And we like the way that sounds. We like the idea of walking in newness of life, of the old life, volume 1, being closed, never to be opened again, and us living in volume 2 in the newness of life. But Romans 7, in a very honest and clear way, the Apostle Paul deals with what we all know to be true, and that is our sin gets in the way of walking in newness of life. And so Romans 7, in many ways, is all about waging war against our sin. And not just waging war against the sin out there in the world, but waging war with the sin that's in our own hearts which is the biggest problem that any of us have. It's what's happening inside of us. And so if I heard many of you open up your Bibles a moment ago, which is music to my ears, you did that. That's wonderful. Wonderful. And you're going to find it very helpful to have a copy of God's Word open before you. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one. It looks like this under a chair near you. will be on page 943 in these black Bibles. And so please follow along with me as I read Romans 7, verses 1 to 12. And this may be helpful. If you were here last week, the, even though we're in a new chapter, the Apostle Paul is still answering the question that he asked in the middle of Romans 6. The question in the middle of Romans 6 was, Why then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And the Apostle Paul is still answering that question. So, Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? Is the law sin, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us by God in love for our good. I mean, it really, really is. And so we're going to look at this passage, which, once again, it's, it, it, it's a complicated passage. So if you're thinking, I have no idea what he just read to me, that, that's okay. Now, if you don't have some idea of that in about 30 minutes, that's not okay. So we'll see if I, what kind of a job I do. But we're going to look at this with two headings. First, the marriage, and then the mirror. So the marriage and the mirror. So once again, we're still answering this question, Romans six fifteen. Why then are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? You know, the Apostle Paul has, he made the incredible argument, this declaration of the amazing, incredible grace of God at the end of Romans 5, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This amazing grace, that, that God's grace always far outweighs our sin, that God's grace always throws down the trump card over and over and over again on our sin. And so the question that the Apostle Paul is imagining that his hearers, his readers, may ask is, well, okay, we, recipients of God's grace through faith in Jesus, not under law, but under grace, not working to earn God's favor and God's love, but being recipients of God's favor, God's love, God's acceptance, all given to us because of what Jesus has done, does that mean that we can then do whatever we want? Does that mean we can live however we choose? If you remember last week, the Apostle Paul responds at the end of Romans 6 by using the illustration of slavery. Illustration of slavery, which was very common to everyday life in first century Rome because one-third of the city of Rome, they were slaves, and so everybody understood it. And what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans 6 is that we are all slaves to someone or something, that we're all either a slave or a servant to sin or a slave and a servant to sin. To God, And Paul uses that illustration. And now here in Romans 7, he's still answering that question. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? But now he's going to use another illustration. Another illustration that's common to everyday life, not only in first century Rome, but common to us living in Houston. And that is this idea of marriage. So listen again to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 verses 1 and 2. Or do you not know, brothers... So he's speaking to fellow Christians. Do you not know those of you who have died with Christ? Those of you who have raised to newness of life in Christ? Okay, those of you who are no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of God. Okay, so do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, the word of God, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Now, Paul's point is simple enough. When a couple gets married, they make vows to one another. And the vows go something like this. I, Richard, take you, Alicia, to be my wife, 
And I promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Right? That's how the vows go. Beautiful words. And we all understand that if one spouse should die, then all the obligations of the marriage vow are now set aside and the living spouse is completely free to be married again. So the the law that binds and regulates our marriage is only in effect as long as both spouses are alive. So you see what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's using the illustration of marriage to give us an example from everyday life of how death breaks the power of law. You with me? Now, he then applies it to the life of a Christian, and this becomes a little bit tricky because the application doesn't parallel the illustration. So let me read this to you, starting in uh, Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So that verse is going to be up there for a while, and we're going to walk through it so we understand. See, at the beginning, Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. See, Paul's making the point that followers of Jesus have died to the law. Well, how? You've died to the law through the body of Christ, that we died to the law through our union with Jesus. So if you're a follower of Christ, and this is a, re- this is a recap, really, from Romans 6, and the Apostle Paul keeps talking about it because this union with Christ means everything in our fight against sin. And many of us don't understand it, or we underappreciate it, which is one of the reasons why we're struggling so mightily with our sin. That Paul says, don't you understand your union with Christ? That you died to the law through Christ. That by faith in Christ, his death on the cross 2,000 years ago became your death. And his resurrection to new life became your resurrection to new life. That's Romans 6. Well, What does it mean that the Christian has died to the law? What does that mean? That's important, right? We're not under law, we're under grace. Paul says we've died to the law. That's sounding an awful lot like a whole lot of freedom there, Pastor. So what does this mean? We're going to develop it throughout throughout this passage. But it doesn't mean that the law has been removed or done away with. So you look again at verse 4. We died to the law. The law did not die. We died to the law. See, our passage makes it clear at the end in verse 12 that the law is holy, righteous, and good. See, there's not a problem with the law. It's holy, righteous, and good. But there is a problem, and the problem is with me and with you. The problem is that we fail to keep the law perfectly. Therefore, apart from faith in Jesus and the grace that he offers, we all live under the relentless burden of the law that weighs us down moment by moment and day by day. See, I think Paul's point here is that before we became Christians, we were legally bound to the law of God, but we all failed to keep and obey God's law perfectly, which meant that we carried around with us The guilt, the shame, the brokenness, the burden of judgment and condemnation that we rightly deserve from a holy and perfect God because of our sin. So Paul says that we experience this burden of marriage to the law, as Paul puts it, 
guilt, shame, brokenness because of our failure to perfectly and perpetually obey the law. But he says, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's not you anymore. You died to the law through Christ. Christ has taken the full weight of the curse of the law upon himself, paid for it in full, so that if you're in Christ, you no longer carry that burden on our backs. No more. That's a lot of Romans 6, right? Be who you are now. Volume 1 closed, volume 2 open. But here, Paul talking about marriage, he's applying this to our lives. He goes further. He doesn't only say that we've died to the law through Christ. He says more. He says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Jesus takes the burden from us, but look at what he offers himself. Offers us. He offers us himself so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. That Paul's saying that if you're a follower of Christ, you need to understand you're no longer married to the law. So stop making the mistake that by obeying the law, by performing, that somehow you are climbing your way to God. Stop thinking of the law and the rules as a way to earn your salvation, a way of acceptance, a a path of access, or a ladder up to God. That the only way anyone is reconciled to God is through, by faith, trusting in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. And this is a ladder, if you will, that we ascend by faith, not by works. But what Paul says is understand this marriage illustration. You now belong to another. And so for guys, this can be a little bit weird, but he says, you're married to Jesus, who is your husband. He says, think of yourselves as married to Jesus. Now, What difference does that make? What is thinking about ourselves as being married to Jesus? How does that impact at all this fight that we all have against sin that we know is real? We'll look at the very end of verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, Paul wants followers of Jesus to think about themselves as being married to Jesus. To be a Christian means that we've entered into a legal, permanent, yet personal relationship with Jesus that is as comprehensive as marriage. So think about that. Whenever a single person gets married, guess what changes? Everything. Everything changes. Everything changes. The single person is completely free to make a lot of decisions on their own, do what they want to do, eat where they want to eat, eat what they want to eat, go to bed when they want to go to bed, get up when they want to get, get up. They can, you know, they, they can save, they cannot save, they can do a lot of things. Once they get married, guess what changes? Everything changes. Everything changes. Everything's impacted. Now, when two people are in love and they get married, they're excited for things to change. But make no mistake, everything changes. You see, there's not a single area of your life that is not impacted by your new marriage, right? The newly married person transitions from my finances to our finances. From my home to our home. From my food to our food. From my schedule, my plans, my calendar to our schedule, our plans, our calendar. From my bed to our bed. Everything changes. Nothing is untouched. And once again, you're excited for your life to change because you're in love. You even want to change for 
and learn to serve the one that you love. And this is the illustration that the Apostle Paul is applying to the believer's life. And the point is that the follower of Jesus is not to ignore the law of God, but rather, out of love for Jesus, our perfectly faithful and loving husband. His point is that it's only fitting that we'll want to bring God's law and to bring Jesus into every area of our lives. Every area of our lives. But, but it's not like it was when we were married to the law. See, whenever we're married to the law, we're motivated out of different things. We're motivated out of fear and guilt, a sense of duty at best. But in a marriage where you feel like you're loved by this spouse perfectly, and you know this spouse loves you so much that he died for you, then your motivation is not fear, but it's love, it's freedom. And the Apostle Paul says this changes everything. This is so key. If we're going to get to the war against sin, you've got to understand this kind of relationship, this kind of illustration. You know, if you didn't connect with slavery in Romans 6, connect with marriage here. Look at verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, I love the way that Timothy Keller summarizes this and comments on it. He says, so does the Christian ignore the moral law of God? Not at all. We now look at it as an expression of God's desires. He loves honesty, purity, generosity, truth, integrity, kindness, and so on. We now use the law to please the one who saved us. So we are not under the law. We are not married to it. We're married to Christ. We're seeking to please Him. And so the law's precepts are ways to honor the one we love. They're now not a burden. We have a new motivation, love for our husband. And obey in a new framework, acceptance on the basis of Christ, not us fulfilling the law. We belong to Christ as his bride, knowing he died for us. So how could we and why would we not live to please him out of loving gratitude toward him? And this is all in response to the question, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And Paul says absolutely not. He said, absolutely not. The reason why is because you're no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave to God. You're no longer married to the law, you're now married to Christ. You're married to Christ, and you get all the benefits that come with that. His love for you, his acceptance of you. He's the kind of husband who's not going to stop writing love letters once you get married. He's not going to stop bringing you flowers. He's not going to care about you any less. It's going to be very, very clear that he delights in you over and over and over again. And so he says, this can motivate us to to live and serve in the new way of the Spirit. In the new way of the Spirit. And then he asks a question. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? So once again, right, so he's still, he's still anticipating all of these questions. I mean, he said that the, the, we died, not the law. And he's going to make it really clear in verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But he's still asking this question. Well, okay, so does this mean the law is sin? And he's anticipating people thinking this because of what he just said, right? That we died to the law, 
no longer married to it. We've been released from it. We're now married to Christ. We're now freed from the law. We're now obeying the new way of the Spirit, not in the old written code. And so he's asking this question that someone could possibly think and and they could misunderstand. Is the law sinful and bad? And what he says in verse 7 is, by no means. By no means. And as I've told you throughout this study, that whenever Paul says that, this Greek expression, okay, this is the strongest possible negative. Now, some of you have figured out what that really, really means. Like, I, I normally translate this to you as, um, God forbid, may it never be, certainly not, of course not, this is inconceivable, this is unthinkable. And some of you have said, Richard, what that really means is something else that you're not going to say in church. And you're right. That's exactly what that means. It's that strong. He's like, there's no way. There's no way. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. The, the law of God is holy. It's righteous. It's good. Don't think that. Grace trumps sin, but grace doesn't do away with the law. The law is still holy, good, righteous. Now, we make mistakes, though, when we don't understand the purpose of the law. So let's do that. Let's go there. What is the purpose of the law? Now, what's fascinating is that if you... Um, most of them have gone, but if you, if you ask a child who was here last week in Sunday school, they can tell you what the three purposes of the law are because they learned about it last week. And you see, theologians and church fathers like John Calvin and many others have taught us over the years the three purposes of the law. And there are, really, there are three images that help illustrate these purposes. And we'll get to all three, but we'll get to the last two at the very end because The first and greatest image is one that you have to start with. And for many of us, we've missed that. We skip to the other two images. And if you do, if you do, you get off on the wrong track. You can end up missing Jesus altogether. So we have to understand this greatest and first image first. Would you like to hear about it? Okay. That's our second heading. The law is a mirror. The law is a mirror. It's a mirror and it shows us two important things. It shows us God's holy and perfect character and his perfect standard. And it shows us our utter inability to live up to that standard. So the image I want you to have is that the law is a mirror that shows us the dirt on our faces. The law is a mirror that shows us our dirt on our faces. The law shows us the ugliness of our own sin and our need for the grace that's only found in Jesus. See, Look again at verse 7. Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So is the law sin? No way. If it would not have been for the law, I wouldn't know what sin is. See, Paul's telling us that the law revealed his sin to himself by actually aggravating, stirring up, and provoking the sin in him. And this is what the law has always been doing. If you're the least bit familiar with your Bible, you know the story of the Garden of Eden. That's what happened, right? You can have all of the delicious fruit from every tree in the garden except that one. Well, we have to have that one. That we have to have that forbidden fruit. 
And now for us today, laws and rules of various sorts aggravate, provoke, and reveal our sin because of our fallen nature that we inherited from Adam. You see, all of us, we all have this, whether you're a a rule-keeping person or a rules-are-meant-to-be-broken kind of person. And we all, our temperaments fall into one of those two categories. And in God's, uh, you know, beautiful, creative humor, those two types of people tend to marry each other. Okay? Um, But there is a real fallen perversity about our hearts. And this is the desire, even if you're a a rule-following person, there's still that desire to do something for no other reason than because it is forbidden. See, because even rule keepers, even rule keepers don't like to be told what to do. Because of that perversity. That perversity in our hearts that says, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. Now, one of the, one of the best, um, I think, best illustrations of this comes from another church father, St. Augustine. In his book, Confessions, he tells a story um, about what he and some other teenagers did one night. He says, Near our vineyard was a pear tree, loaded with fruit, though the fruit was not particularly attractive either in color or taste. Wasn't great fruit. I and some other youths, so think a little pack of teenagers here, conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest of the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pairs of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. What was it I loved about that theft? It must have been the pleasure of acting against the law so that I, a prisoner under rule, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden. See, that's the promise that sin gives us, is that you'll be free. But all sin really can offer us is a maimed counterfeit of freedom. But for Augustine, the law that said, don't pick the pears, stirred up in his heart, in his little boy's heart, the desire to pick the pears because of their fallen nature, and it reveals the sinfulness of their hearts. That's what the law does. It's a mirror. It shows us the dirt on our faces. Now, what's striking about Romans 7 is of all the laws, of all the Ten Commandments, the Apostle Paul picks coveting as an example. So look look at verse 7. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, the whole law of God is a mirror, but here's a question, right? Why do you think Why do you think the Apostle Paul picks the final intent of the Tenth Commandments? Think about that. Why coveting? I mean, if you're like me, you don't even think about coveting. I mean, if you're looking at the Ten Commandments, let's say, and you're teaching your children about them, or you're praying through the Ten Commandments for your children, you're thinking about a lot of other things that you want God to spare them from rather than being a coveter, right? 
I mean, that's not even, that's not even really in your mind. I mean, you would never admit that I covet something, because that's, we would never admit that. But we don't think about that as being one of the really bad things. But yet, the Apostle Paul says this is his example. So why? Why do you think the Apostle Paul uses the example of thou shall not covet? Well, here's what I think. I think it's very possible for a very moral and devout man like the Apostle Paul was before he became a Christian. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Very religious, very moral man. I think it's entirely possible that he looked at the Ten Commandments, looked at them and just said, check, check, check. I've got all of these. I'm doing all of these. He looked at them because... You know, the first nine of the Ten Commandments, for the most part, can, can be, in your mind, limited to the external and outward behavior. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that don't think you're not a murderer, because if you've been angry and hated someone from the heart, you're guilty of breaking that law. Or don't think you're not an adulterer, because if you've lusted, you've broken that law. But it's possible for someone who's a religious, moral man, like the Apostle Paul was before he became a Christian, to look at the first of the Ten Commandments and say, you know what? Not worshipped an idol, not disobeyed my parents, not murdered, not lied, not stolen, not committed adultery. Check, 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 check. And then you've got the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. What's different about that one? That one's internal. The others are internal too, but, but you can mistakenly you know, think they're only external. But this is one where you can't do that. This is all about the heart. And so the late Francis Schaeffer put it this way, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs the Savior. See, I think he uses this example because coveting is totally inward, and no matter how hard you work at outwardly keeping the other nine, that no one can perfectly keep this ten commandment. Pastor Skip Ryan put it this way, Desire becomes coveting, when it fails to include the love of God and the love of man. Jesus summarized the law by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Coveting raises questions like, Do I love God enough to desire nothing more than Him? Do I love my neighbor enough not to envy her? Desire becomes coveting when we begin to desire what God hasn't given us or what our neighbor has and we don't have. You see, coveting asks the one leading question, what about me? What about me? Why does he or she have beauty, talent, wealth, power, the world's love and other gifts and not me? Why can Kevin sing like that and not me? And this hit home for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment, that tenth commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You see, Paul says that he once thought he was spiritually alive. He thought he was doing well. He thought he was pleasing to God, measuring up. He thought for sure, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. You know, there's, there, there are good deeds and there are bad deeds, and my good far outweighs the bad, and my good is a lot better than your good, and so I, I'm fine. I'm measuring up just fine. But then he finally understood the law of God, and it was like a mirror that showed him the dirt on his face, and he realized he was spiritually dead. Look at verse 10. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. But this death, once again, just like dying with Christ, this death to the law is not a bad thing. That's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to slay us. It's supposed to slay the, the misconception, the myth that God's word is a ladder that we climb to ascend to God, that we do all the right things and then God's obligated to love us and forgive us. The law is supposed to be a mirror that shows us that we can't climb that ladder. We can't do it. And it's meant to show us, point us to the one who can do it and who did do it for us. That's why Paul would say elsewhere in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. That's what the law is meant to do. So think about this. Okay, this illustration of the mirror. The mirror can and will show you the dirt on your face. Maybe you have no idea it's there and you go look in the mirror. Boom, there it is. That's a problem. But the point here, friends, is that the mirror can't clean your face. The mirror can't clean your face. So you need soap and water for that. So the greatest purpose of the law is to be that mirror that shows you the dirt on your face that it can't clean and that you can't clean and to point you to the one who can. The purpose of the law is to show you how sin has become a crimson stain. And you, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you serve, no matter how much penance you try to pay, no matter how guilty you feel, sin has become a crimson stain. And you see it, and you can't get it out. And the law is meant to lead you to Jesus who says, hey, bring it to me. You bring that crimson stain to me and you know what I'll do with it. I'll wash it white as snow. That's what the law is for. That's that greatest purpose. So verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Are you kidding me? That's incredible news. The law is, what we see in verse 12, holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. I mean, what can be better than that? A mirror showing you that sin, showing you that dirt, and saying, go to Jesus and he will clean it. You see, friends, the law is a holy mirror. Holy mirror that shows us God's perfect character and standard, how far short we fall from measuring up. It leads us to Jesus and salvation by grace through faith. And only, only after, only after we see the law as a mirror should we think about the law's other two purposes. But I'll share those with you just because I like you. Other two purposes. The law is a holy mirror. The law also is a righteous fence. It's a righteous fence that restrains evil in the world. It's a righteous fence that shows you the safe, better way to live. But we don't start there. Because if we start there, guess what? 
there'll be very little difference between you and someone worshiping in a mosque this morning. There'll be very little difference between you and someone worshiping in a synagogue yesterday. We don't start with the law as a fence, although it is. It's a righteous fence. The law is also a good path. That's the other image, a path. It's a good path that leads us forward to show us how we love God and love others well. But we don't start with it being a good path. Do this, do this, do this. We start with it as a mirror. So it shows us our need for Christ. We start with a marriage. A marriage where we have a spouse who loves us enough to lay down his life for us. And we start with the law as a mirror. We start here, and it's possible. It's possible to start saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to click that. I'm not going to say I'm not going to think that. That's not who I am anymore. I don't have to do that. I've got a new master. I've got a new lover. He loves me well. That sin promises to love me well, but it doesn't love me well. It wants me to love it. It doesn't love me back. See, it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure that every week we have more questions than we have answers. Keep speaking to us. Keep bringing us back. Keep reminding us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And let us not hear all of that and miss that your word is to be a mirror. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.